Today's podcast is sponsored by Brandestock's Polearm Emporium. You can find Brandestock's in Upper Ramsbottom Street in the town of Thornistons, just past Mrs. Cockle's Codpiece Boutique. Brandestock's Polearm Emporium sells a wide range of halberds, glaives and bohemian ear spoons. Ear spoons? That's not a real thing, is it? Ridiculous. What is this nonsense, anyway? I can't believe I'm reduced to flogging this low-class commoner tap to pay my rent. Hello, 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 and welcome to Morris's unofficial tabletop RPG talk. I, as always, am your host, Morris, a.k.a. Russ, or Russ, a.k.a. Morris. Uh, with me, as always, is my ebullient co-host, Peter Coffey. From the Southampton Guild of Roleplayers. Hello, Russ. And Hi, Peter. De- delighted to be here, as ever. And uh, I've got a special guest. What? I was going to say, they didn't follow me here, they must have followed you here. Who yeah, are they? I have a, f- I have a friend. Hello. Can you believe it? No. Uh, so, so with us here <laughs> today unlikely. is... <laughs> it's very unlikely. Uh, with us here today is Rodney Thompson, who you might know from oh. such games as Lords of Waterdeep, the board game. Oh. Uh, Star Wars Saga Edition, D&D 5th Edition, nice. uh, last year's Dusk City Outlaws, and many other things. Hello, Rodney. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys? We are fantastic. Good. Of course, for us, of course, for us, it's, uh, it's, it's mid-afternoon. For you, it's the crack of dawn. And quite literally, the crack of dawn, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say I'm sorry, but I'm, no, I'm not. No, it's okay. Really. No, no. no. Not, not in um, any way. That's okay. <laughs> in China, man. In China. That's what I'm going to say. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, that was always fun. We're um, recording at yeah, 9 so, p.m. <laughs> um, yeah, so, Rodney, how are you? I haven't seen you in, wow, it must be like two or three years now. Uh, yeah, let's see here. I, well, it might have been longer than that because uh, this year I went to Gen Con. This past uh, Gen Con was my first one in four years. So it's probably been right. four or five years since we so, had our so it must have been four years, traditional yeah. Sunday night beers. <laughs> yeah. I always look forward to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I feel I, great I, the next morning. <laughs> I always look to that. Yeah, no, I'm doing well. Uh, staying, staying busy. I've, uh, I've been at Bungie now for almost three and a half years. I have a wow. one and a half year old son, and then I do my little side projects that were, you know, that are going on right now. So I don't sleep a whole lot anymore, but otherwise, I'm doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk a lot more about those side projects in a bit. Yeah. But for the moment, we dive into the show. So um, let's start with you, Peter. Peter? Yes? Got a question for you. <gasps> What's the question for us? What's caught your eyes this week in the world of RPGs? Ooh, um, a little game called... Well, it's not a game. It's a setting for 5th Ed D&D, which, you yeah, know, is very popular, I understand. It is? I heard, yes. yeah. This one is called Espergenesis and is a science fiction setting. But Espergenesis. Espergenesis, yes. The idea being that all the races of this particular universe are espers who achieve genesis through the use of what's called solarium, which is found within hypercubes of some description. Wow. I, it, it, it's only been released for like a little bit. Um, I've like been very fortunate enough to have like a bit of a sneaky peek at one of the PDFs. But yeah, no, very interesting. There's a lot to like, lots lots of nice flavour. They're really sticking to the three pillars of D&D design of social combat and exploration. But they've also done things to make sure that things like having ray guns in the system do not massively overbalance everything else. Mm. Which is, which is let's face it, a perennial problem with game design. We've got these so is it, ideas. Is it, so is it, a, is it, you know, very much D&D 5e rules or is it a modified set, do you know? Oh, no, it's proper D&D 5e rules. Straight down the line. 
yeah, but they've uh, they've done a lot of uh, adaptation and uh, reflavoring uh, in order to make it work properly. Which wow. yeah, I, I I haven't dived into it into a lot of detail because I say it's only it's only fresh out. But no, I'm I'm, I'm very excited by this. Um, I might check out. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. worthwhile doing yeah. so. What's caught your eye, Russ? Me? Yeah. Well, um, so um, you remember last week we had Grant Howitt on the show. Grant and Chris. It's Grant hard, and Chris, but uh, for the moment I'm talking them. about Grant specifically because oh, yeah, he yeah. releases, which we didn't actually get around to mentioning last week, a, uh, a one-page RPG every month, Ooh, which okay. is literally one single sheet of paper with an entire yes. RPG, including illustrations on it. Including illustrations. And uh, I was just looking, uh, his, his, uh, his latest one just came out today. Um, he does it over on Patreon. And this one is called uh, Retrograde. Which Ooh. is a cyberpunk game. Nice, nice. All on one sheet of paper. Uh, the, the, the concept is you wake up and you can't remember who you are or why you're there. Ah. And so uh, a lot of these elements get added in throughout the game as you sort of remember who you are and why you're there. So you roll, you yep. roll a d6 to determine what your name tag says, uh, what you're wearing. So you might be wearing, I don't know, like a data clerk robes or uh, penitentiary overalls or something like that. Uh, uh, you roll uh, a d6 to determine what you're carrying so you might have black market data bomb or a, or a blast pistol or something uh, and what room you woke up in Oh. and then the GM uh, is, is going to roll for a couple of sort of elements of the setting and then you're going to play through you're going to play through this one page RPG basically recovering your identity as you go mm. Oh yes, that's, but of course you don't know what your identity is because it's been randomly you generated. No, you don't. You don't. Uh, you just got those clues that you start with. Yeah, part of the fun. You uh, discover it. That does sound yeah. like a lot of fun. Well, we'll uh, stick a we'll stick a link in your show notes, and then people can uh, head on over and check that out. Oh, uh, as you know, he does loads of them. He's done. You know, you've you've mentioned Honey Heist before, haven't you? You know. Oh yeah. He's done. He's I, I, done we saw a new saw um, uh, Skeleton Adventure. That was pretty good. That yeah yeah. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. So that's 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 my thing this week. Uh, what about you, Rodney? You spotted anything in RPGs this week? You know, I, I don't know anything that I've spotted. I don't know that I've spotted anything new, but <laughs> I I certainly have been playing something that's at least new to me. Uh, we've mm. uh, I have a, a game group on Tuesday nights. We meet and we rotate the game that we're playing about every I don't know uh, three or four sessions. So basically, a different game, a different uh, game master every three or four sessions. It's a way that yeah. we can play a lot of different games because we all have huge collections of games sitting on our shelves that we never actually play. Uh, so yeah, I know it's a common problem. We actually just last week started a uh, a game of the new Legend of the Five Rings from Fantasy oh, yeah, Flight. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and uh, we've been playing through that, and we're we're playing through the the starter box right now, and uh, it's it's pretty interesting. I mean, I don't. Like I have no like childhood nostalgia for the game because I didn't mm. I didn't play it when I was growing up or anything or or when I was in college. But I love Legend of the Five Rings and I I can't necessarily explain why. I think it's just like a combination of how rich the setting is and how mm. like interesting and different all the the factions are. But we're playing right now and uh, having a lot of fun and and usually. When I play a role-playing game, I tend to, especially for the first time, I tend to try and play yeah. something very archetypal, right? Like, when we play mm. Shadowrun for the first time, I wanted to play a street samurai, right? And when we played mm. Vampire for the first time, I was like, okay, pick me the most right down the middle of the road vampire, and that's what I want to play. Because I want to kind of, I, I like to buy into the concept of the game and, like, play the game yeah, yeah. like the person, yeah. like the people who designed it wanted it to be played, right? 
Exactly. So I tend I tend to do that the very first time, and uh, I've played a fair amount of L5R before, and I usually like to play like your very archetypal samurai, right? Because I like buying into the concept. And so this time we were handing out the pre-generated characters that come in the box set. I said to myself, I was like, okay, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna break out of my my normal way to play, and so I was like, okay, give me the Scorpion Clan. I'm gonna be the the you know backstabby traitorous character, which is not right. not in my lane at all. Right? No, no, no. Like even when I play D and D, I basically play like paladins and I play rogues, but I play like the nice rogues that are the the rogues oh, with right, a heart okay. of gold, right? <laughs> so this so, is so you're not usually playing a necromancer. Or... I I don't I don't know. Like I I like good guys as part of it, right? But fair enough. You know, I I just I I I rebel against the idea that like being a paladin means that you're lawful stupid, right? I'm like no. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You can be a good guy and do the right thing and be a cool, interesting character. So that's I mean, what, that's what I usually try and aim at, right? Um, but this time around, I'm I'm all backstabby i'm a I'm, of course you know it's backstabby in the service of the emperor but you know oh yeah they sure. totally legit. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> sounds fair to me right so um i think it's time we had a look at this week's news oh good idea we should do that well apparently some books got released this week really anything yeah anything interesting nah nothing interesting no <laughs> um so uh oh, i've got a question for you what do buses and D and D books have in common? They come along three at a time. Yeah, you wait all year for one, and then suddenly two come out at once. Um, so, uh, yeah, last Friday, uh, Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage and the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica were mm. both released. Um, unfortunately, I, I hear there's been some printing problems of some kind because they're mm. not in our local shop in town in Forbidden Planet yet, which Aww. is unfortunate. So I haven't seen it yet. Um, no. But uh, those those people who are getting it on D and D Beyond and things like that have uh, have got it, and I think quite a few people over in the US have copies of the books. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't I can't talk too much about them because I haven't seen them yet. But um, yeah, both books came out. We've mm-hmm. kind of talked about them quite a bit on previous shows anyway, uh, and I um, yeah, I'm quite excited to get those. Like Ravnica is quite exciting for me because it's mm. a new setting that I'm not familiar with at all. Not having played Magic the Gathering at all, I you know it's completely new to me. And, uh, I think it's been what everyone was the last brand new D and D setting, uh, and that was that was what fifteen years ago, maybe. Well, unless you count the setting for that was the default setting in fourth edition D and D. Oh yeah, there's that. Yeah, the Nintendo oh, point point points of light thing. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm super excited to have a look at that one. I can't wait to start reading. I mean, we've got some up, up on um, Ian, but we've got a couple of first impressions, not quite reviews, because they've pretty much got hold of the book, glanced through it, from Beth, who is our reviewer over in the US. And uh, <laughs> she's uh, she's done reviews of both of them. Um, so I think in the next two weeks, assuming we can get hold of them over here, uh, we can dive into, I think it's Waterdeep next week and Ravenacur the week after, and have a look at those in detail. Sounds good. We should do that. Yeah, I think that sounds good. Can't wait for that. Mm. Uh, there's a bit of bad news, actually. Oh, no. What's happened? Uh, so, do you recall about, uh, it was about two years ago, John Wick had this massive, massive Kickstarter for 7C. Yeah, that's right. Uh, made $1.3 million, I think it was. I think it was approximately all the money, yeah. It was a ridiculous, ridiculous <laughs> amount of money. <laughs> well, it's exactly it's only been surpassed it. once, and that was by Matt Colville this year, and he he did he doubled it, I think, with his... Mm. Um, 
Strongholds and Streaming, I think it was, or Strongholds and Followers or something like that. Um, yeah. Kickstarter. But uh, up until then, John Wick had the record for the largest ever tabletop RPG Kickstarter. Uh-huh. Um, unfortunately, he's announced this week that uh, John Wick Presents is laying off all its staff. Oh. Financial issues of some kind. I don't know the exact details. Um, I think it's important to say that uh, of the Kickstarter awards, tons of them have been delivered. It's not like he's flaking out on the Kickstarter or anything like that, and I wouldn't want anyone to get that idea. No, no. At, at first, because uh, I, I was a backer of it, and I got my copy of Seventh Sea, the hardcover copy, ages and ages ago, or last oh, year or something. Yeah. yeah. But uh, there was a big, big flurry of releases coming out in the first year or so since the Kickstarter, and uh, he's announced that while the you know further releases are still ongoing, people shouldn't really expect that sort of release schedule going forward. So everything's well, going to slow down a little bit there. I mean, it, well, was a, it was a pretty ambitious release schedule in the first place, right? Like It was quite aggressive, yeah. I mean, there was something like 13, 14 different, um, different books coming out over a period of one or two years. And I think seven or wow. eight of them have come out so far, which leaves just under half of them to come, I think. And if I'm not that mistaken, didn't they do a books. second Kickstarter uh, for uh, a, so, like a, a different part of the setting as well? Yeah, so I don't know how you pronounce uh, it. Kitai, K-H-I-T-A-I. Something like right. that. Um, yeah, but yeah. that Kickstarter, it did about 200,000, I believe, just off the top of my head. So not nearly as well as the original. And I, I wonder if um, wonder if that had anything to do with this. I don't know. Um, he also did a board game one That's true, earlier yeah. this year. And that, that one got cancelled right. uh, partway through. Because that one that wasn't wasn't performing as expected either. So I you know, I'm not I'm not privy to any behind the scenes information, just what's what's been announced on um on Kickstarter oh, itself. Yeah. But yeah, sad times for all those people that have um that were employed, all those freelancers that were lined up and stuff like that. So it's yeah. all sad when this sort of thing happens. Uh, if you recall, uh, Evil Hat announced something similar last month. Uh-huh. Evil Hat Productions announced that they were sort of like cancelling a lot of lines in 2019 after sort of going over yeah. their finances and things. So I don't know. I don't know what this means in terms of the broader industry, if it means anything at all, or whether they're just two anomalies or what. I don't know because we all know that D and D is getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger by the day. Yeah, that's very true. You know, I, I I can't tell. I haven't got any insight into that. But um, yeah, it's bad news for a couple of couple of companies there. No, um, sad times. Yeah, it's really yeah. disappointing to hear because honestly, like you know, you're saying D and D is obviously doing better and better, and I think you know, I I don't want to say that a rising tide lifts all ships, but I think that's kind of the case that everyone. I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. I, I I I think the better D and D does, the better it does for you know everybody else. Russ, was there any more news? <laughs> there was a bit more news. There was a Pathfinder oh, news. Pathfinder news. Oh yeah, Pathfinder news. Yeah, Pathfinder two news to be precise. Ooh. So uh, there has been another Pathfinder 2 playtest update. Mm-hmm. Let's have a look. Uh, the rules update uh, ha- this time has changed a lot of the major classes in the playtest. I won't go into all the details because there's quite a lot of changes here. But um, Okay. Uh, are you familiar with the resonance mechanic from Pathfinder 2? Can't say that I am. This is a mechanic where basically you have a, a sort of pool of points that you can use in order to activate magic items. Uh-huh. Which has been a little bit controversial. Some people like it, some people don't. Um, and it's, I think it's gone through a couple of different iterations throughout the playtest as well. Uh-huh. But I haven't been following it closely enough to say for sure. Alchemists, who obviously are quite a sort of um, activating magic item type class, uh-huh. um, no longer use resonance, is one of the big changes they've got. Barbarians have a big change for their rage mechanic. Um, so uh, before there was a, a static number of rounds of rage. 
right. now uh, they have to roll a flat check to stay angry each round. Every round. Your okay, face looks bemused. The stay angry check. Yeah. Bards, clerics and druids all have some sort of minor, minor tweaks. Uh, fighters and monks, not an awful lot. Uh, paladins are finally coming away from their strict lawful good restriction, opening up to other good alignments. Um, so say they keep most of their kit with some variations to name and flavour based on the new alignment. Uh, Rangers got some simplification. Sorcerers have access now to a feat which heightens all their bloodline spells. <laughs> and um, uh, wizards now get access to a, a baked-in quick preparation feat and the ability to change out low-level spell slots for high-level spells. Guess no. Yeah. The uh, the playtest must be coming to an end soon, I would have thought. This is this is update 1.6, and I'm not sure how many there's going to be, mm. but I think they're at the end of the, the final chapter of the Doomsday Dawn playtest adventures. Uh, fair enough. Um, any other news? Uh, I was just, uh, uh, you know, Mike Myler does his uh, epic monsters and um, uh, mythological figures column over on EN World. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so he's covered Dracula and Achilles and, yeah. all, historical sorts of, and all sorts of historical figures, loads and loads yeah. of them. And he does, he does one a week. And uh, occasionally he drops in an epic monster instead. So he might do Cthulhu Ooh. or he might do something like that. He's dropped in uh, the Drop Bear this week. Ah, a big Australian mammal. That Australian legend. No, my friend. Vicious creature. Uh, I was was walking through the rainforest in the Blue Mountain. I was in fear. Uh, uh, They're a close relative to koala, surprisingly quick. Yeah. um, They'd be like, they'd move like a slow, but no, they actually race along quite quickly. It's like, oh, oh, scary. Yeah. But for those those listeners who don't know, sort of drop bears, there's something of an in-joke with Australians. And I think also Penny Arcade mentioned them in their webcomic once. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely definitely worth checking out. Well, I, I feel you're underestimating the drop drop bear menace for us. <laughs> I, I am disappointed, but not surprised. <laughs> yeah, I am never going to Australia. Not where those things are around. It's not like everything's trying to kill you. I think some of the uh, smaller birds might only think about trying to kill you rather than actually <laughs> trying to do so. It's the spiders. The spiders I can't handle. Oh. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Legit. No way. No way could I have to check my shoes for spiders in the morning. No way. I'm sure you get used to it over time. <laughs> Shuddering already. We got to uh, change the subject, guys. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, shall, we, shall, we, shall we move on? Yes, let's. Shall we play our favourite game in all the world? Our favourite game in all the world ever? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, Rodney, do you know what our favourite game in all the world ever is? I believe I've gotten some sneak previews of it, but why don't you explain <laughs> it to uh, you know those who are not in the know? <laughs> so, our favourite game in the world ever is where I read out the name of a Kickstarter, and then you try and guess what that Kickstarter is based on just the name. Okay. It's highly scientific. There's yeah, a very, it. very, very complex scoring system which involves spreadsheets, algorithms, formula, stuff like that. It's uh... <laughs> Sounds like number weighing. It's a lot. <laughs> so what I reckon, should I give you two each? There's two of you. Rather than sure. give... yeah, I on, usually man. give Peter three or four, so if we split them yeah. between you. Sounds um, great. So we'll start with Peter so Rodney can sort of see how it works. Love it. <laughs> so we'll skip past Spectaculars for the moment because we all know what that is and we're going to talk about that in great detail later. <laughs> All right then, Peter. What is yeah. the dreams in Gary's basement? 
apart from hilarious, the dreams in Gary's basement. The dreams in Gary's basement. So it sounds like it's a modern day setting, and we're looking at some guy, uh, a millennial, potentially, who's living in the basement, and... Oh, wait, is this about Gary Gygax? Gary Gygax. It might well be, actually. That sounds interesting. So is it Kickstarter for some sort of, like, historical game... Uh, it's like sort of a little, blah, 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 like a, what's the word I'm looking for? Like sort of a semi-biography or like a mini history about role-playing games. It's a thing off with, I guess, about Dungeons and Dragons based off Gary Gygax. Not bad, not bad. I'll give you a 7 out of 10 for that. Woohoo! <laughs> uh, so, yes, you are correct. It is about Gary Gygax. Yep. Um, it's not a game, though. It's a documentary. That is what I just said for us. I thought you said it was a game. All I right, thought I was saying it was a game. And then I took a sharp right turn into uh um, Oh, okay, fair place. enough. In that case, instead of 7 out of 10, I'll give you 6 out of 10. Well done. Ooh. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Harsh referee. Judge's decision, is, <laughs> decision is final, arbitrary, <laughs> and not, con- not constrained by Euclidean space. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so this is a documentary looking at Gary's life from his time as a down-on-his-luck shoe repairman to building mm-hmm. a multi-million dollar company that spawned our hobby. Mm. Uh, so you can get that over on Kickstarter. Um, Rodney, are you ready? I am ready, yes. Are you ready? You. Okay, then. Okay, this is a good one. What is what is Nighty Nights? I'll spell uh, it for you. I, I think I know what it is. Uh, oh. Is it cheating if I know what it is? <laughs> uh, slightly, yeah. <laughs> uh, I just think, go with it. If, go I'm with not it mis- like, go if, if I'm not mistaken, I think it is a... Uh, a role-playing game, I, I'm going to say it's probably powered by the apocalypse because damn near everything is powered by the apocalypse these days. <laughs> Even uh, my car is powered by sad. the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, basically, right. Uh, so I think it's a powered by the apocalypse game. Man, it remind if I'm not mistaken, it's like Threadbare, I think was the other one, where it, it's basically like you play stuffed animals or or something like that, where, you, where you're basically like... I don't know, protecting some kids' dreams or something like that. I don't know. I, I feel like I saw this one, um, yeah, but it reminded me that, of... You got that one spot on. Yeah. Uh, so, Nighty oh, Night, spelt, spelt N-I-G-H-T-Y-K-N-I-G-H-T. Oh, oh, Clever. well, well, well. <laughs> Peter looks impressed. <laughs> I'm very impressed. Um, yeah, so, so it's, uh, it's Tiny D6, not a Power Bay Apocalypse, uh, but apart from that, uh, you play stuffed animals, dolls, and action figures... Defending your sleeping human children from monsters and nightmares. An excellent title, I thought. No, oh, it's amazing. Yeah, that actually sounds really cool. I like. I really do like the sound. Last Ooh. week we had one which was uh, dinosaur princesses, which everybody loved the sound of. That's yes. Dinosaurs, which are princesses, not princesses riding dinosaurs. Yeah, um, this week that'd be this princesses riding dinosaurs. <laughs> I keep on finding these kind of quirky, kind of um, sort of oriented towards kick kickstarters that yeah. looks so amazing that i can't help but back them honestly like the fastest way to get me to back your kickstarter is to have yeah. a title where i'm just like damn it i wish i thought of that <laughs> yeah and this but is this one of those guy gets it. yeah this guy gets it this guy mm. knows exactly oh yeah so uh, yeah so, yeah. so so rodney gets a yeah. solid 12 out of 10 for that Ooh. hey good work Rodney. that's twice that's twice your score peter you are lagging behind <laughs> You you look you like can't you can't see the guy over the camera. You look, but... you, you look like you don't care. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> <Bingo>. <laughs> okay. Are you I'm ready, Peter, for your next one? Yes. See if you can improve <laughs> on your six out of ten. 
No. Are you ready? Let's do it anyway. What is? No. What is? Die laughing. Die laughing. Die, die laughing. laughing. Die laughing. Hmm. It sounds like an interesting cross of comedy and horror, or it could be about rolling a polyhedra, which when you do, it cackles maniacally when you roll it. That would also be quite fun as well. That would be a laughing die, which is a die yeah, laughing. I saw, yeah, I, I got it before you finished the sentence, yeah. It's I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's a uh, rules light system in order to let you do comedy horror uh, improv games. Spot on. Nice. 100%. <laughs> I don't want to give you 10 out of 10. I just don't want to do it. But I feel like I can't have to because you've nailed it. Give, give me 11 out of 11 because it's a spinal tap. 11 out of 11. Yeah. All right. Go, there we go. Up to 11. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, Don't Laughing, a short play, GM-less uh, tabletop role-playing game, uh, where you portray characters in a horror comedy movie. The stick on this one is everybody is going to die. It's just a matter Woo-hoo. of when and how funny you can make it. Ah, hmm. that sounds like many a game called. That does sound pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Uh, it says it <laughs> requires just a couple of minutes of prep to play. You pick your mm-hmm. characters, make a few quick choices, you pick a monster, and you're ready to go. Oh, and okay, it only so... takes like one to two hours to play, depending on how many players are involved. Like, like Fiasco, but a lot more horror-themed. I guess, yeah. Yeah, sounds good. Amazing. Yeah, well, that, does, that does that does sound good. Hmm. Okay. It's okay, German right. for the laughing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a German game. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well. I thought it was just Peter making the bad puns, but no. No, no. no. He's going to join in. No, no. You know what you signed up for when you invited me. Yeah. I like you, okay. You should come on the show more often. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Hmm. I've got two here to choose from for you, Rodney. I don't know which one to go with. Shall we go with Bastion? Bastion. Bastion. Okay. Bastion. Uh, let's see here. I don't know what this one is. If you don't know what it is, I'm going to be amazed if you get it. Uh, let's see here. Bastion. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with, it's a supplement for D&D that is about building fortresses. Yeah, that's my guess. Supplement for Mm. D&D about building fortresses. Hmm. Unfortunately. Yeah. I didn't think that was it. not that. (laughs) And it's not even close to that. It's uh, it to be fair, that, that, that was a difficult one. RPG. But I think you've scored something like minus ten points out of ten there. Perfect. Uh, makes perfect sense. <laughs> Only minus ten. That's a big Only minus ten. Which I think it actually frankly could have been worse. Lead. I think this is the first time Peter's ever won this game. Congratulations, sir. <laughs> no, no, no. There was, I think I think I can definitely say in this game there are only losers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Bastion is a uh, Afrocentric. A sword oh. and sorcery fantasy game. Uh, so Come full color, hardcover, hundred page source book Ooh. uses the uh, mythic wow. D six system, uh, okay. and it's set in the last city at the edge of oblivion, a post apocalyptic game where heroes explore the wasteland to find survivors of the last great global holocaust. Wow, mm. it sounds cool. It does sound cool. It does sound cool. There's some lovely. There's some lovely art as well. Some some of the art on this is beautiful. I would not. I would not have got that from Bastion. I'll be honest. That. Well, no, it, it makes sense, right? It's like the last Bastion of civilization. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just completely whiffed. <laughs> so it's uh, so it's not it's not set in Earth. I don't think it's uh, so you take the role of uh, the Hankra, the greatest warriors to ever walk the dying land of Eif Udai. I probably pronounced them really badly, but um, super badly. It's okay. It's part of our shtick. 
I, I pronounce most things that. really badly, so, you know, it's <laughs> it's not surprising. Um, okay, well, that is it for our favourite game in all the world this week. I think we could declare Peter a surprising winner. Hey. Congratulations, Peter. Yeah, okay. congratulations. I, I, I think we need to apply some sort of time zone modifier to this, because like, <laughs> I think making anyone play this game at any time is obviously a crime against the Geneva Convention. But right. making them do that Especially at seven o'clock before they the finish their yeah. first cup of coffee? I mean, come on, Russ, what sort of monster hmm. are you? It's okay, I'm on my third cup. It should be fair by now, <laughs> no. right? Oh, in which case, no sympathy for you, come Right. Get it right. together, man, get it together. <laughs> no. Thank you for calling the Adventurous Support Line. This call may be recorded for quality assurance purposes. How may I help you today? Uh, well, it's a bit of an odd one, this. Bit of a problem. No problem, sir. I'm sure we can help you with that. What seems to be the issue? Well, we were, you know, adventuring and stuff. You know, like you do. As you say, sir. Like you do. Yeah, we were on the on the 16th level of the orange caverns of the Zenderificatus. Bless you. Thank you. Anyway, we were closing in on the lost tabernacle of Groot the Elder. I think I know where this is going. This is the fourth call I've had about this today. Well, like I say, we were just doing our stuff, our regular day-to-day adventuring stuff, when we all suddenly kind of changed. Changed? How do you mean? We must have been cursed, or enchanted, or, or set off some kind of transmutation trap or something. Could you list some of the changes you've experienced? Well, for a start, our thief... Madeline started getting all pretentious and calling herself a rogue instead. Ah, yes, yep. And uh, our mage put on a pointy hat and declared he was now a wizard. Yep, right, right, I see what's happening, yep. And our cleric, he started talking about domains and channeling divinity and stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did any of you get stronger or brighter all of a sudden? Yeah, everyone seems to be suddenly Olympian world record breakers in their primary capability. Our fighter is now strong enough to bend steel bars, and our wizard just created a new theory of relativity off the top of his head. Is that all? No, the worst part is the fighter suddenly changed into some kind of dragon man, and the rogue has grown horns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, right, yeah. Uh, I think I see what the problem is. It's quite simple, really. Your DM has changed edition. Edition? Yeah, that's from the sounds of it, you were playing something like original second ed D&D with rolled ability scores. Now you're playing D&D fifth ed with point by, which is why your character classes have changed. Your fighter is now a dragonborn, and your rogue is now a tiefling. Is this a common problem? Mm, yeah, perfect common. Don't worry about it. You'll notice that you'll have 20 in your primary ability now. That's the point by. Nice little boost there. Oh, yeah, that's very nice. Well, thank you for your help. I feel so much better now. No problem. Thank you for calling the Adventurer Helpline. Don't forget to complete the survey after the call. You know what I think we should do now? I think we should talk about Rodney. Wow. Well, do we have to? Not, not with you know, Rodney. I... Let's, just, let's just talk about him. About me. Your microphone. Never, never liked that Rodney guy. I mean... What a jerk. He's got he's got a suspicious face. He has. He's oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, Rodney. So for those who don't know who you are, um, you are probably best known for working on uh, Star Wars Saga Edition and on D and D Fifth Edition. Yeah, I'd um, say that's fair. Yeah, I spent about uh, a little bit less than a decade at Wizards of the Coast and yeah. uh, got to work on a lot of different awesome 
projects like Star Wars and D&D and board games and role-playing games and card Ooh. games and all kinds of things. Yeah, so the first time I came aware of you, I think, I must have been coming up to 20 years ago now when you used to i don't do you still yeah. do with it the star wars rpg uh network i i still have the site oh, uh, I still, I, I, you still run it do you? I, I i don't i don't actively run it uh no. i haven't actively run it since i started working at wizards in uh 2007 uh right. but i still i still pay for the hosting and everything <laughs> <laughs> so back yeah. back then i think that was probably the because there was um eric noah's site was around for yep. D third edition at the time and i reckon yep. yours was probably the I reckon the equivalent for the Star Wars RPG. At the I time, think so, yeah. Because yeah. I was in I was in college at the time, and uh, I had a lot of free time. Obviously, like I said earlier, and uh, was able to keep up with the news because after Third Edition D and D came out, the first iteration of D twenty Star Wars mm. wasn't far on its heels. And actually, when I started the site originally, uh, or the previous iteration of the site, it was kind of at the tail end of the West End Games era, yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. The whole like the that whole product line uh, ending and everything. So there was a lot of people who were already big Star Wars RPG fans that were very, let's say, trepidatious about the release of a D20 Star Wars game. Mm. And so oh. like I kind of got in on that ground floor and the, you know, talking about like how, how long ago uh, we sort of became aware of each other. I can tell you that I know this much. My site was nominated for the very first Any Awards, <laughs> which which was... The ceremony was held online. Yes. I remember that. Gary Gygax. I remember uh, that I was at my girlfriend's house. Yeah. Yeah, I was at my girlfriend's house, and I was like, hang on. I got to go log into a chat room for a couple hours. And she, <laughs> she was just like, what? And so I remember sitting in, in uh, like, her family office on her computer. Yeah. On her, yeah, on her computer on in the chat room for that first Any Awards, which was, what, 99, 98, 2000? Uh, I don't know, whatever that was. No, that would have been... No, it must be 2001, I think. It must have been. Was it that late? Okay. I think it was 2001, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, I remember I was still in college, so... So Mm. you then, of course, ended up working on the Star Wars Saga system itself, which I guess must have been quite a dream come true, given the fact that you were such a big fan of the system. It was. Actually, you know, I'd I'd been doing the the site for a while, and I had a pretty good relationship with people who worked at Wizards. Um, Like, I had already developed a relationship with, like, J.D. Weicker and Chris Mm. Perkins... And because they were working on the Star Wars line and they would like do interviews with me and things, right? So I had a good relationship with them and it was actually really interesting. I was in college and I was coming close to the end of the semester and I was looking at the next semester of school and I didn't know how I was going to pay for college because I like my parents were helping me some, but like, you know, I I didn't. A lot of money. yeah, yeah, I didn't have, and I, I didn't have a lot of savings or anything, and so I was like, I don't know how I'm going to pay for this. And while I was struggling for that, I got the call from Chris Perkins, and he was like, Hey, you know, we've seen that you've been putting out a lot of material for the Star Wars RPG. Do you want to, you know, contribute to a book? So like, he basically was taking a chance that like, Hey, this person who's putting out a lot of material because I was putting out content on like a daily basis. He t- took a chance on me, and it ended up helping me pay for my next semester of college. Wow. And then 
after you know you write a book for wizards it suddenly becomes a lot easier to like broach the topic of freelancing with other companies because you can say like hey i wrote this book for wizards do you Mm -hmm. have any work or whatever and so that following so like that was in like october ish of 2000 i think Mm -hmm. Uh, and so then uh at that point i went to gen con that next year and i was Mm -hmm. able to go around to a bunch of different companies and this was right at the start of the d20 boom right Mm -hmm. and i was like hey can you you know get some, can I get some work with you? And so I made contacts at uh, Green Ronin and Paizo and all these other companies that mm. eventually became big parts of the D20 boom. And I was able to pay my way through the rest of college as by freelancing, right? Because uh, like I I basically like I had you know school during the day, I had a night job, and then I had the after my night job freelancing that I was doing, uh, and it was it was enough to help me pay my tuition. So yeah, it was. It was a pivotal moment, obviously, in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were you were you living in Seattle at the time? Or? No, no. I, this was in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. Right. I grew up in in Tennessee, which is uh, far, far away from here. And I just I was in college. Um, uh, Knoxville is about two hours from my hometown of Chattanooga. So I, mm. I, I was living there at the time, and I didn't move to Seattle until I was hired by Wizards to come run the Star Wars line. So uh, after that, obviously, you uh, later worked on D&D 5th Edition. I did, yes. Which I imagine was probably, must be um, an intense and, you know, it's, it's a big, big, big project that launching a new edition of D&D. It um, was. You, a lot of responsibility. <laughs> yeah. Were you, were you surprised about how successful it turned out to be? Did you have any idea at the time? I mean, surprised, probably no. Uh, extremely happy, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Great. I <one>. mean... <laughs> You know, the thing is, like, D&D had gone through, like, a weird period in, in, like, the the fourth edition era, and I wasn't really a part of that as much. Like, I I worked on some of the later source books, but while they were developing fourth edition D&D, I was working on the Star Wars product line. And, like, I was was there for playtesting and stuff, but um, I didn't have a huge hand in it. And then by the time it came time to do fifth edition D&D, I was working full-time on... D&D at that point, right? Yeah. So basically, like I had I had gotten to see sort of secondhand like what was going on in the process for 4th edition, but 5th was the first time I'd really gotten to participate from the yeah. ground floor, right? You know, we were we were in a position where the audience was pretty divided and uh you know, I think that the the game was in a place that was just like, well, okay, we could go a lot of different ways with this, right? And when we started doing the open playtesting process, mm. that's that was kind of the moment that I was like, okay, like this is going to lead us to something that is really exciting and, and it's going to be really great, but it's going to be a long, hard road to get there. Because one of the things that we learned very early on is that the audience, even the audience that is enthusiastic about you know, fifth edition D and D or or any particular edition will be very divided. Like it's not just like across edition lines; it's within an edition, right? Like you know, yeah. So like, I mean, that's the nature. That's the nature of fandom these days. Yeah. For anything, yeah. I think it's. Uh... But the thing is, the audience was enthusiastic, right? They were just they all they had very different desires, right? Mm. And so the big challenge was always. How do we satisfy the desires of our player base without, A, making something that's so generic as just mush, right? 
Mm. And I think the big sort of, I don't want to say revelation, but the big turning point for us was when we were talking about the game and we were like, you know, we should behave not like we are the creators of this game. Mm. We are the shepherds of this game, right? Like this is a game that has 40 years of history. It Mm. has massive fandom that is a cultural touchstone to the point where like we're watching sitcoms and there are D&D references that are legitimate D&D references, not just like some writer that threw in like, oh, what's that nerd game? Okay, whatever. But like, you know, or like watching that episode of Community where they're playing D&D, right? Or Stranger Um, Things or something like that. Exactly, exactly, right? You know, this is a cultural touchstone and we need to shepherd this game uh, and make sure that it is... It, that it is doing what it is supposed to do, what doing mm. what D&D is supposed to do in the best way possible, right? And, like, f- once we kind of, you know, adopted that mindset and then started working with, like, the feedback we were getting from the audience, I knew we would we were on the right track. Like, I, I felt very yeah. confident in that. And that, I mean, like, there were still tons of struggles, right? Like, there were, you know, long arguments. There, I mean, there's obviously things in the game, even today, that, I, like, I things I didn't get my way on that I'm just mm. like... I would change that, right? <laughs> but but that's yeah. the other thing, too, is, like, we had an amazing team of extremely okay. talented people who were working on it, right? So between, like, audience participation and being on, like, a, a role-playing game all-star team, mm. right? Like, mm. like, I felt very confident at the time. And when the game finally released and started getting out there into the wild and seeing the generally positive reaction, I mean, it wasn't universal, right? But generally positive reaction, I was like, okay, this is going to do fine. And then that combined with like the different product strategy, which we had talked about at the time. I mean, I I was mostly focused on the design stuff, but like Mm. we talked about the product strategy and like, even at the time I was like, yes, this is the way that we should be doing things, right? Like I, I felt good about that direction. And so it's been really gratifying for me to see how it's paid off even though like i've been i've been gone for three and a half years now right like i was there through launch right and and Mm -hmm. through some of the post-launch supplements right but like now even being a few years removed i'm very proud of the game i think the work that the team did was amazing and i think that you know dnd is in a a really great place so that's my super long-winded way of saying like no i'm not surprised i'm just very (laughs) pleased that my instincts were correct Cool. Mm. Um, is, there, is there anything in fifth edition that you would say is is yours? You know, I mean, I, could we point to something? So that 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 that's Rodney. That is. Uh, I don't know. What, like every what, everybody what, what kind of touched everything. Oh, what can they blame me for? Anything you want. <laughs> anything you want. Uh, no, I, you know, like everything was touched by everybody, and that's the thing. Is like yeah. there's no one thing that I can be like. Oh, I like I know that thing because like hmm. there are classes in the game that I did the the mechanical design like first pass on, but then yeah. like Peter Lee and Jeremy Crawford and Rob Schwab would come behind mm-hmm. me and then tinker and tweak and modify yeah, or yeah. like flip it around, right? Like Rob, I, a good example is I remember Rob Schwab designed a, a bunch of the like first pass mechanics on some spell. Mm. And then, like, there was, like, a a month where every day me and Peter and Jeremy were in a conference room, like, projecting everything up on the screen Mm. and just going through every spell line by line. Like, oh, we need to change this, tweak this, whatever, right? So it was was a collaborative process from, like, beginning to end. Uh, Mm. There are are elements of the game that I could say, like, yes, I was part of, like, a core group of people that were responsible for that. Like, I think the closest I can say is that me and Peter and Rob did a lot of the underlying math behind the game. Mm. 
Uh, and it's it's obviously like because you can't predict what's going to happen at any given game table. Like it, you can only go so far. But like we did a lot of that underlying math. Uh, and then like Jeremy is actually a funny story. There was a snow day, uh, and and okay. it snows pretty rarely in Seattle. Like despite the fact that we're far north and everything, like we yeah. actually don't get a lot of snow here, right? Uh, but we had a snow day, one of our rare snow days, and it was it was bad enough that we were actually snowed in for like three or four days. And me and Jeremy Crawford and Tom Lapilli, who was who was still at Wizards at the time, uh, we basically got on. I think it was Google Hangouts, mm-hmm. uh, and we basically had a like two day long design session just like on Google Hangouts, where we wrote like the first draft of the core like resolution system, like the basic you know skill checks and attacks mm-hmm. and and combat and all that stuff, right? And a lot of that actually basically survived, uh, other than editing, largely unscathed through yeah. the process, right? Now, part of that's because, like, we really, like, we tried to basically say, like, we, what is the simplest we can possibly get with this, right? Yep. So there wasn't a lot of drift there. But, mm. you know, over the that's course good. of, like, a two-day snow day, we, we carved out a lot of what became the core rules. But like I say, like, I can't take credit for a single thing because no, no. everything was touched by a huge number of people. Mm. I think it's yeah. fairly safe to say you guys knocked it out of the park because, you know, it is so, so popular now. I mean, the growth has uh, been explosive. I think it's been uh, D&D's grown 30% year on year for the last four years, I think, was the, I'm, was the I'm latest not surprised. stuff to come out. It's enormous. Um, yeah. It's it's interesting though because I think um, obviously uh, the advent of streaming and stuff like that helped mm-hmm. and things like Chronicle yep. Well and all that sort of stuff, but that became big after um, you started designing D and D, didn't it? I mean, back then I don't think oh, streaming yeah. was such a big thing. Was it in your minds at all at the time? Did you have any idea that you were designing a rule set which? Because I think uh, it's very it's a very good rule set for streaming, mm. whereas a slightly more complex rule set, a sort of more one word uh heavy rule set might be a little more difficult or cumbersome to stream just because of the nature of the medium yeah it it really wasn't in our minds that much because streaming was so nascent at the time and not just not just for role-playing games but for video games even right like twitch was still young and uh hadn't quite reached the popularity that it is at now obviously I remember during the playtest process, we did a couple of live streams. Mm-hmm. Um, Greg Greg Billsland was pushing us pretty hard to do a lot of live streams, and so yeah. I ran. I remember um, a fifth edition conversion of Chris Perkins' adventure, Lich Queen's Beloved from oh, right. Dungeon One Hundred, right? Uh, and that was one of the first live streams we did at at Wizards, and then we did uh, a few more of those. But like we we had no idea that it was going to be a big thing. And of course, this was way before like Critical Role or any of like the big modern streams, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't really in our head. I'm not sure we would have made that many decisions that were different from what we actually did Mm. partially because like i said before we were so guided by the audience feedback right and i think like while streaming has been an amazing boon for DD, i'm not certain that the majority of the players out there are street or i I can say almost for certain the majority of players out there are not streamers and i think that by looking at sort of like what our audience was guiding us towards, we it would have still guided us in the direction that we went. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe maybe we would have made a few uh, decisions slightly differently, but I 
doubt it would be that different from what we ended up with. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so, yeah, so let's, let's get on to talking about your current stuff then, shall we? Because you sure. uh, you left Wizards about three years ago, went right. to work at Bungie, is it? That's right. A video games company, um, yes. uh, working on a few video games. I'm not a big video game player, unfortunately, so I don't know an awful <laughs> lot about... But about Bungie stuff, are but quite, quite... Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Fairly was, important. So was that just more money, was it? Or was it was that more sort of what you wanted to do? Or Different different challenges? Uh, you know, the thing is, like, you get to work on an edition of D&D, &D, yeah. and you look around, and you're like, oh, what do I do next, yeah. right? Um, and the thing is, like, at the time, like, I had, I had had a big success with Lords of Waterdeep. Like, mm. uh, we, I, I say I, we, I, it was a, <coughs> excuse me, it was a collaborative effort. <laughs> it right? was all me. Um, it was yeah. definitely not And D&D, &D, &D, no. and Star Wars, yeah. everything was me. It was absolutely not. <laughs> uh, let me make that 100% clear. Um, but, you know, I'd gotten to participate in something that was very successful right like uh lords of Waterdeep had had become a really big hit already yeah we'd already done the digital translation of the game uh which is a big hit as well so you know i'd, I'd had a, i'd gotten to work on a big hit board game and then i worked on DD fifth edition and that was you know very successful right mm. so i got to i mean i got to help design an edition of DD, mm. which is on the bucket list of just about any game designer i i, I would imagine right and so I'm looking around, and I'm like, okay, well, what do I do next? And I, I happen to be teaching myself Unity, which, like, uh. I just, like, we had a lull in the post-5th edition release. Mm. I was teaching myself Unity. I was coding my own little games. And I had had the fortune to go visit Bungie uh, as a part of a talk that we gave on the design of 5th edition. Mm. Like, it was a an IGDA talk, um, and we had gone there, and I really liked the studio. And I just happened to be, like, looking at the, like, careers page. I was like, eh, this job kind of sounds like a thing that I could do. And honestly, <laughs> like, when I applied for the job, I was like, I don't think I have a snowball's chance in hell of getting this job, but I'll, I'll give it a try anyways. Uh, and then it turns out that they wanted somebody with my particular skill set. Yeah, uh, having worked and, on D&D is probably a great sort of little... Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, like, I work on um, Destiny, which is an ongoing, like, live yeah. service game. And so they were like, well, what if we had someone who was like a professional dungeon master working <laughs> here, right? So uh, it, I was very fortunate that at the time that I was sort of looking to, to try new things, mm. they were also looking to add new skill sets to their repertoire mm. and even like you know when I, I went through the interview process i got the job and once i started the job even then like at the very beginning i was like oh man can i do this job <laughs> i mean i like I've, I've been in tabletop games for at that point you know over 15 years yeah. like ha can i can i do this uh and it turns out that a lot of game design is kind of platform agnostic right uh, and so once I learned the new tools and, and I'm very fortunate that, um, I have a minor in computer science, so mm -hmm. I already had some basic programming knowledge and I'd been teaching myself unity. So the technical hurdles weren't quite as high. Uh, so I'm very fortunate that when I got there, um, a, they were basically like, yeah, we know you've been in tabletop games, so we're going to help, help you a little bit. But then also like a lot of my skills immediately applied. Yeah. Uh, so, so I would say like within about six months, I was firing on all cylinders again as a game designer. So, and then ever since then, it's been, you know, like I, I, I love it and I'm, mm. I'm doing interesting 
game design things in a totally different medium yeah. than I did for the previous, you know, oh, 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And of course, you kept your hand in the um, tabletop design business, of course. Um, oh. So last yeah. year, Dust City Outlaws, I backed that mm-hmm. Kickstarter. Oh. I have it sitting right there. <laughs> what I really yes. like about Dust City Outlaws, and it looks like your current one, um, Spectaculars, is more of the same, is you, know, you brought back the whole box set idea. Um, it's a good, The production values of that thing were lovely. I mean, I... I'm I'm always a sucker for production values and stuff anyway, and as, as I suspect that many people are. And box sets definitely is something I've always loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dust of the Outlaws. Um, sadly, I haven't had a chance to play it. Oh, no. I, I've, I mean, I've got it. I've read it. Um, I know how to play it, but I haven't actually had opportunity to play it. I've really got to sort of find find some... If, if I make it to Gen Con maybe next year or the year after and you're there, we have to, we have to do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would love to. Uh, you know, And I designed it so that, like, you can play it on a moment's notice, Yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So... That's what I love about it. I mean, you're... It's a, Ethos that you've used there and you've used in uh, Spectaculars, which yeah. uh, basically is uh, zero preparation, pretty much. You can just yeah, that's what I'm play. aiming at. And, and part of that's just purely selfish, honestly, because, <laughs> you know, I have a day job and then yeah. a side job and, like I said, yeah. a toddler, right? So oh. I don't have a ton of time uh, in general. Track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, like, trying to trying to make a game for, you know, game nights when we don't have a plan yeah. or where it's like, oh, like, normally we would play a board game. The thing is, like, I love board games, but then sometimes uh, I just want to play an RPG, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. And if no one's done the prep work... It's a different thing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. It, like, a board game, it's okay, but there's just something about being at an RPG table, you've got your friends around, and it's just like... It, it's the interactive element, I mm, think, yeah. of an RPG that yeah. really makes it stand out, that really grabs you in a way Absolutely. that... Board games, yeah, they're fine, but there's, there, there's always that element of people just sitting around it's like when you're playing an rpg you come together as a group in a way that i think very few other things give you the opportunity to do so hmm. yeah i, I, I definitely right. no I, I definitely agree and i i kind of got my start in gaming with rpgs and i didn't really play board games until mm. i moved out to seattle right so mm-hmm. uh, my first love is rpgs so i'm always yeah. i'm always looking for more ways to get more rpgs on the table yeah i'm much the same uh, i mean i i'm not a big board gamer at all which basically means that, you know, I, I played your Lords of Waterdeep game, which is one of the very few games I've, board games I've played in the last sort of 15 years. Because I'm not really, you know, if I've got a choice, I'll RPG always. I love Lords of Waterdeep because um, I found, I, I tend to find with a board game, when you, when someone's, I can't stand that bit where someone who knows the board game explains the rules to you and basically starts oh. halfway through. If you, do you know yeah. what I mean? And uh, yeah. you know, um, I think explaining explaining the rules of a board game to someone who doesn't know how to play that board game is an art. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. I completely agree. And when people start, oh. oh yeah, so you want to play this card and this card? You haven't even told me the gold of the game yet. I mean, you know, it's. Yeah. I hate that, but I found that Waterdeep, and I'm sure other games do this, but I, I'm not a big, yeah. big experienced board gamer. Um, Lords of Waterdeep kind of had this sort of ramp that I found it quite yes. easy. To play because it was quite simple to play at first, and then I kind of yes. by the time it got to the end of the game, I knew how to play the game, but not not in the sense that I'd gotten halfway through. Then I realised mm-hmm. how to play the game. Then I think, oh, I just want to start again now. Do you know what I mean? Like some games, <laughs> right? Uh, but yeah. with Lords of the Lord, I did. I didn't have that experience. So it it kind of ramped me up. In, yeah, in a way that, that was a really very intentional design. Peter and I, when we were working on the game, uh, the initial design, we had said, like, you know, the key to uh, a game, and, you know, we were aiming at, like, play this game in an hour, right? Yeah. So we had a very clear playtime target. 
But the key to a satisfying experience is basically letting people make interesting, clever decisions, like feeling clever. Mm. But the thing is, if it's your first time playing, it's really hard to feel clever if Mm. it's throwing a lot at you. So we basically, like, we looked at our game, we're like, okay, we're going to start with the simplest possible complexity that that is functional, right? And then by the end, we want to get to about this level of complexity. Mm. How do we sort of chop it up and layer those things in? And so, like... The way that buildings come out in the game is one of those key ways. But then, like, everything about, like, the design was about that ramping up of complexity. And the thing is, I think the reason we were so successful is that it ramps up to a a point of complexity that, uh, like, there's a lot on the board, but it all still boils down to, like, you're going to take one agent, put it on the board, take one action, get your resources, bring, you know, cash in. Like, it's still the same base functionality of the game. Uh, so that like you reach the end of the game, you finish, and you can sort of look at it and say like, okay, I wish I'd done this, 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 this differently. But it's not so far out of your like grasp, and most people want to come back and play again because they're like, yeah. oh, like I get it now. I now I think I could do a better job if we yeah. played it again. But right? but in that first yeah. go, you're not going to do so badly compared yeah. to other people that know the game that you're discouraged, oh. which is something I you know I find is a, definitely a thing when playing with people who are experienced at a game and. Right. Either they're going to be holding back, in which case they're not having as yeah. much fun, or you're just going to get <laughs> trounced. Yeah. But anyway, um, so spectaculars. Yeah. Um, so yeah. You've, you've let me had a quick look at the. Um, is that a quick play of it? Was it? It was an X. It, yeah. it wasn't the full thing, was it? But there was. Uh... No, it's a. It's the print and play. It's a bit like the spectaculars. A little bit like the Incredibles, in that you're a superhero team coming together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing I thought was particularly attractive about it again was that sort of. It's a game for people with busy lives. Mm. Like you, yeah. very minimal prep. Get up, get it going, and your superheroes. Let's do it. Is that is that a fair thing? I think so. Um, I you know the big thing was you're talking about Dust City Outlaws earlier, and, and it being you know wanting to get on the table quickly with Spectaculars. You know, I was like, okay, like Dust City Outlaws, great for like one shots, getting on the table very quickly. But I want to try and tackle campaign play right as like the main Mm. goal right and i want to tackle world building because i think there's a lot of people out there that want to play long-running campaigns Mm. and they want to do their own world building but they don't have time for it because they're busy adults or they're in school or whatever right and the thing is like it's such a satisfying experience when you run a great campaign or when you build your own world yeah i was like what if i what if i applied sort of the theory behind dust city outlaws of using like physical components and the design of the game to make that something that everybody can experience yeah. that like even a busy person can experience so when i sort of give the the elevator pitch for spectaculars i'm like yeah it's it's a superhero role-playing game you're going to create your own heroes and villains and everything a lot of superhero rpgs do that right but for yeah. this game the the big thing about it is it doesn't come with a setting yeah. you're going to build your own setting and you're going to like from the ground up create your own comic book universe right and then you're going to play through campaigns and it's going to come with campaigns that require you to do zero prep work Mm. you're just going to open it up and start playing through this campaign and like you can change game masters you know session to session people can play different characters or whatever it's going to be a no prep campaign play world building game i mean that's a big promise you're making there off (laughs) zero prep campaign play you know, the thing is, like, I, I took a lot of inspiration, like, I sort of looked around at different games that, that do this well, and one of them that kept coming up was Pandemic Legacy. 
And yeah. I don't know if you guys have, have played Pandemic Legacy, but mm-hmm. uh, it you know it's a board game that has a campaign to it, right? Like the world changes, your copy of the game changes and everything. So basically, like I looked at Pandemic Legacy mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, how does it pull this off? Uh, and I took a lot of lessons from that game as well. So like it, it is mm-hmm. like a, a tall order to say like, oh, it's campaign play without any prep mm-hmm. work. But physical components make it a lot easier too because i can basically Mm. say like okay like you're gonna have this this pad that you like 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 a tear off sheet pad that every sheet's going to be different and you're going to play down through it and that's like your campaign and so like it kind it it keeps you from feeling like you have to read ahead and prepare and this and that right and every every issue self-contained and this is one of the reasons why i picked the superhero genre Mm. because Mm. it's very episodic and very self-contained it's a combination of a lot of different elements so this uh, this stage of the game where you build the setting. So how does that work? So I've seen I've seen um, bits and pieces of it where you basically have a page yeah. with a number of check boxes, sort of saying that uh, your villain's base is located in a, and then you checkbox a thing and, and yes. stuff like that. So how, how how does how does how does all that work? Is that like a, a sort of pre-session session, a session zero type um, type thing, collaborative kind thing of. with the players? Uh, kind of. So basically, the way it's going to work is you to imagine sort of what the final product is going to look like. You're going to uh, open up this box set, and it's going to have in there a, a sort of big square book, like a, a board game yeah. rule book, that is mm-hmm. the setting book, right? And that's your setting book. Uh, oh, and okay. when you open it up, like the first couple of pages are going to be the basics of your setting. Mm-hmm. So right before you start playing... You're going to go through, and as a group, you're going to collaboratively answer a bunch of questions, yeah. right? And these are multiple choice questions. And this is actually some inspiration I kind of took from the Powered by the Apocalypse games. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I basically said, like, okay, you're going to answer these multiple choice questions that are going to shape the basics of your setting. Now, that's mm-hmm. like the first two-ish pages of the book, right? And it's going to be a 60-page book, right? Mm-hmm. All okay. the other pages are, each page is dedicated to another major setting element. So something like, oh, what is your settings uh, super science lab or the prison oh. they send supervillains to yeah. or Boss. your alternate dimension or whatever. Like all these things that are big iconic tropes of the comic book genre, right? Things you would find in Marvel comics and DC comics and Image comics, yeah, all yeah, these yeah. different superhero things, right? And then as you're playing through the campaigns, periodically uh, it will reference one of those pages, right? Like, oh, hey, you know, this person uh, works for the super science lab. And it'll oh. reference that page, and every time you see a reference to one of the setting elements, mm. you sort of open up the book, you look at it, and if you haven't filled out that section yet, you do it right oh. then, right. right? And so basically, uh. you create all these different elements of your setting at the moment that you need them, and then after that point, if something references, you already have it and ready to go. And so basically, mm. over time, you kind of fill in all the blanks in your setting yeah. and and create the setting collaboratively. At, as you need it. So so this happens during play sometimes rather than before play. You're creating your canon as you Yes, go. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, a lot of times the scenarios will reference like, hey, here's the setting element like right in the middle of the issue, right? So yeah. when you're playing through it, you, you basically pause and be like, oh, we need we need to talk about our super prison. So what is our super prison like? And it's usually like four-ish questions, right? So it takes a couple yeah. of minutes of discussion yeah. and then boom, you're ready to go again, right? I'm good to go. No, that sounds really good. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm really excited about it. I think that 
there's something super fun about like, oh, we created this thing as a group, and then we, you build off of it, and you build off yeah. of it, and you build off of it. And I even have things in there like each hero can kind of progress over time the more you play them. Yeah. If when you create your hero's origin story, you tie it into one of your setting elements, mm. you get mm. a little bump on your progress How track, right? right? So it's like, oh, okay, right. it reinforces this thing that you've already created. So what's, yeah. what's, the, sort of, How, what's the overall sort of genre style? Because uh, superheroes come in all sorts of different, you know, from the gritty uh, to the fantastic. What's the yeah. sort of aim of this one? So general tone overall is largely aimed at sort of like I would say like post silver age, early bronze age, like mm -hmm. everything from like late sixties to early eighties, like pre, pre dark age comics yeah. in general. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, with heavy inspiration from things like Darwin Cook's new frontier or uh, the Incredibles, uh, you know, basically mm -hmm. like generally optimistic about heroes, but not afraid to tackle like difficult mm -hmm. subjects. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and by difficult subjects, I mean, Bad guys. <laughs> Vill villains that do, like, real villainy, right? Mm. But that having been said, you kind of define, like, the genre by the choices you make as well. Um, within that, the game comes with four campaigns. So four oh, yeah. series is what I call them. Uh, each one of those has about 13 issues, which are the scenarios, right? So each of those four series is themed after a different genre of superheroes. Right. So, for example, okay. um, one of the series is Explorers of the Unknown, and it's uh, sort mm. of themed after, like, super science, which is like Fantastic Four, Avengers, mm. that kind of thing, right? Another one is Eldritch Mysteries, and that one's sort of magic and sorcery themed, which encompasses everything from, like, Doctor Strange all mm. the way over to, like, Hellblazer, mm. right? So it's, mm. you know, it's, it's kind of... Um, Aiming at these different genres, but just like in Marvel and DC, you have uh, drift between them yeah. to where like characters from one series show up in another one, right? Yeah. How do you handle the fact that like superheroes have basically different power levels? Like you've got Hawkeye and you've got Thor, and one of these is the god of lightning, and the other guy drives the bus. Right. Uh, basically, <laughs> I just I just fully flattened the power curve, right? Like, mm. you know, Hawkeye and Thor show up in the Avengers movie. They both have yeah. their own scenes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I kind of leave it up to the players to narrate mm. their descriptions in a way that makes sense, right? Mm. You know, the thing is, like, this is a collaborative superhero game where we're all on the same team. I, I didn't feel like I needed to basically like, okay, we got to make sure that yeah, everyone's at different power levels. That makes perfect sense. It's like, no, like you narrate this, you're coming up with the descriptions for what your hero is doing. If you want to be the street level guy and this person over here wants to be like crazy, crazy cosmic person, and you're yeah. both going to be appearing in the same series. It's just like if some writer was writing it into a comic book, which happens all the time, by the way. Right. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like ghostwriter is in space right now. So well, like, you know, yeah. So it, it's sort of up to the players to, to narrate those differences in a way that makes sense. Um, but mechanically, it's pretty, pretty flattened, right? Yeah. And the focus is really more on like the storytelling rather than like being really crunchy, which yeah, I suppose it, makes it's a lot a, of sense. It's a little crunchier than Dusk City Outlaws was, or it was because Dusk City Outlaws was very much about like this sort of narrative planning your heist and and stuff like that yeah, i love, I love um, the planning so, phase in that that's just uh yeah i just yeah. love that element so, of a game and just sort of the idea of seeing players there <laughs> just planning together 
Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. But with spectaculars, superheroes kind of demand a little more action mm-hmm. uh, and yes. a little more conflict, right? Uh, a lot of what they're about is that conflict. So yeah. I definitely aim the game a little bit more at um, the action side of things, and uh, it's a little bit more tactical. Yeah. You have a little bit more tactical control over what your hero is doing, and it's uh-huh. a little bit more involved as far as like your decision-making goes. Um, but that having been said, in general, compared to a lot of superhero RPGs, it is a little bit lighter on the rule side. Sure. And yeah. the, fo- the focus is more on, like, can we create... Uh, sort of interesting action scenes where I make decisions that have consequences uh, without having to burn a lot of brain cells optimizing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you're about halfway through the Kickstarter now. Are you is it about two weeks left? A week left? Uh, actually, only a week only left. A week. So Ooh, I'm dear, three, dear. three quarters of the way through. Oh, you're going to do it. You're going to blast it. It's going to be fine. This is your second Kickstarter, and you're using the same it is. system, base system, I think, is it, as Dust City Outlaws? Same dice mechanics, same dice let's mechanics. put it that way. How, how, does, how, does that, yeah. how does that dice mechanic work? Let me, let me back up a little bit and explain where it came right. from. I really like the idea behind uh, like Fantasy Flight's uh, Star Wars game with the like whole bunch of funky dice, right? Like In general, I like the idea behind it, but... <laughs> It's more involved than what I wanted for my game, right? So I, I sort of looked at it and I was like, okay, can I do something that creates like a spectrum of results and that creates interesting twists and turns uh, without having to uh, constantly sort of read the tea leaves every time you roll the dice, right? Because that's one of the things that I like about like D20 games mm-hmm. is sometimes if I'm a if I'm the DM in like D&D and I have no idea what to do, I'm just like, oh, whatever, roll some dice, right? <laughs> and so I like that aspect of like the more pass-fail D20 style games. But I like the like sort of diversity of results that you get from a game like Fantasy Flight Star Wars or like Powered by the Apocalypse's sort of spectrum of results on the 2D6. Mm. And so I was like, okay, I want to create something like that, um, but I want to make it a dice system that when you look at it, it's easy to understand if you've never played an RPG before. And so Mm. I was like, okay, well... You know, one of the biggest things that I think is hard to communicate to people when they play D&D is, like, how good are you at a thing, right? Because, mm. uh, like, if I see, like, oh, whatever, plus three, it's like, okay, well, what does that yeah, mean? It's yeah. like, well, you're rolling a Definitely. D20, and the average on a D20 is actually 10.5, so if you've got a plus three, <laughs> it's 13.5 out of 20, which is, and, like, it's a whole thing, right? Yeah. Which eventually, like, people get it, but, you know, yeah. the first time you see it, it's, it's tricky. So I was like, mm. okay, well, percentile systems don't necessarily have that problem because it's like, how... What's my chance of success here? 80%. Well, I know, like, it's super instinctive what 80% means, Mm. right? So I was like, okay, like, percentile has that big advantage. But one of the tricky parts about a lot of percentile systems is like, oh, it's, you know, you have an 80% chance, but this thing gives you a plus 20% bonus. And it's like, Uh, what what does that mean? Am I rolling under 100? Yeah. So do I succeed? What's happening here? Yeah. Right. So I basically took like the things I liked about a percentile system and the things I liked about uh, like Fancy Flight Star Wars or Warhammer or things like that. I was like, okay, I'm going to smoosh these together. Or Fate actually does this too, right? I was like, I'm going to smoosh these together, right? And so basically it's a dice system where you roll percentile dice for your success or failure, right? And every skill and every power has a percentage chance of success. So it's like, okay, I'm going to use my super strength, 80% chance of success, no matter what I'm doing. I always just have to roll under an 80 to succeed. Like, that number never changes. Nice. 
okay. But then I have two other kinds of dice. I have advantage dice and I have challenge uh, dice, which each have their own single symbol on them. So like another uh, sort of difference between this and like Fantasy Flight Star Wars is that there's one symbol on the bad dice, one symbol on the good dice, and, and, and then there's like blank sides on those, right? And so basically for positive and negative circumstances surrounding the role, you add advantage and challenge dice into the role. And it's like, okay, well... You know, you're trying to blast that guy out of the sky, but he's really far away, so add a challenge die. But he doesn't know you're there, so add an advantage die. And also, like, you did some prep work in advance for this, so add another advantage die. And so you sort of take those and your percentile dice, roll them all at once. And what you get is basically a really fast interpretation of what happens. Because it's like, all right, did I succeed or fail? Look at the percentile dice. Do I have upside or downside? Look at the advantage and challenge dice. Right. And because I'm just looking at I'm just looking at symbols, right? Like, oh okay. Like, yep, I've got two two boons on my advantage dice. Great. So I know that I'm gonna get two boons worth of extra upside on top of that. Then the nice part is it's really fast to adjudicate. It's really easy to sort of look at what I rolled and and, and read it and be like, oh yep, success mm-hmm. with two boons. So that like super success basically, right? And it's like really fast to adjudicate, but then it also gives you that nice spectrum of possible results. And it's actually, I think, one of the reasons why Dusk City Outlaws and Spectaculars both are easier to play with no prep. Mm. Because a lot of times, if you're prepping for a game, you're thinking about like, oh, what are the interesting contingencies? Like, oh, what could possibly happen here that's interesting? What are the fun twists and turns? And with <laughs> uh, with this dice system, you kind of wait until the players roll the dice. Uh, and then you're like, oh, okay, uh, yeah, you succeed, but with a drawback. Okay, what would be an interesting, uh, like, negative twist? Okay, boom, and you go from there, right? And no. so it's very in-the-moment improvisation, no. but it's also it also sort of hits that goal in my mind of, like, you know, sometimes no. you just want someone to roll dice to see what happens, mm. and, yeah. like, you don't have to add in advantage or challenge dice. Sometimes you're just like, uh, yeah, throw your percentile dice and let's see yeah. what you get. Uh, and so I think it kind of hits that nice, like, middle ground between, like, diverse interesting uh results like spectrum of results and then like ease of of use and interpretation yeah. right i do i do i do like the idea of physically adding dice rather than modifiers yeah. um, i like the sort of tactile yeah. kind of yeah. it's like uh, the uh, inspiration mechanic in D is also a bit like that as well. yeah you physically add an extra d20 or advantage yeah advantage yeah. disadvantage yeah yeah and also it makes it more accessible to people with dyscalculia which is, like, a fairly significant problem. I mean, we've all played in games where there's been someone who, no matter how many times they've rolled a dice, they just can't add it up. And that's not because they're necessarily bad at maths. They might be. But for a lot of people, actually having to do that kind of number crunch time over time is really stressful. But, yeah, just adding an extra dice rather than adding... uh... You know, doing some mental maths and sort of like adding or taking away a, a modifier. I love, I love the concept of doing that. It's just tactile, easy, yeah, it's and very, simple, isn't it? Yeah, it's very easy to see, like at a glance, like oh, I've, I, you know, this is a favorable circumstance for yeah, me, or, yeah. or an unfavorable circumstance, right? And just by like seeing what dice you have in your hand, it kind of gives you this vague sense of like, oh, okay, like I understand the situation around yeah. this role. So, how, how many powers does a typical character have? Because that, that range is very much in the comic books from just having. Arm falling yes. off, boy, with his uh, one power yes. of having his arm fall off. Right, <laughs> that is right. a real thing, by the way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> up, 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 to yeah. up to Superman, who's got like ten <laughs> powers. I mean, what's the, what's the sort of range we're talking for this? So I would say, in general, uh, one to three. One to three. Uh, right. So you have to have oh, at least mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have up to three. 
but yeah. there are times in the game when certain characters can get more. So, for example, mm-hmm. uh, I've got an archetype called the Sorcerer, right. right? And the Sorcerer obviously has lots of spells and everything, and so it'd be very easy yeah. to be like, you can use any power in the game. Uh, so what I didn't say <laughs> is like, okay, no, you've got three powers just like anybody else. They're up to three powers yeah. just like anybody else, but... If you spend these hero points, which is a resource you have, you can basically draw three more powers off the deck and swap out some of your powers. So mm. it's like you're like changing the spells you've mm. memorized in D&D, right? So there's a little flexibility yeah. there. And this is one of the places where like having physical components like cards really comes in handy mm. because like I... My personal philosophy is that, like, if I if I look at, like, a random table and a deck of cards, I'm like, yep, the deck of cards is just, like, the better version of the random table in a lot of ways, right? It's not 100% true, but, but like, having that deck of cards, I can just be like, yeah, draw some powers off of there, right? Or um, the inventor archetype, basically, they have an ability that says, like, hey... Take the top card of the deck of powers, turn it face up, and play with that card face mm. up at all times. And at any time, you can basically spend a hero point to use yeah. that power. And then when you do, it cycles back down to the bottom of the deck, and you flip the next card up, right? And so basically, like, <laughs> using the physical pieces that come with the game to enhance gameplay in a way that's like, oh, okay, like, I get what's happening here. I'm an mm. inventor, so I'm constantly having, like, inspiration for new inventions yeah. without but- having to, like, craft some very complex mechanic out of it. Right. So, would you say that there's some some of your board game influence in that? A a, a traditional role playing game will roll a dice and consult a table, whereas a board game will typically do the same thing by drawing a card or or whatever. Would you say that that, you know you've been influenced a bit by by board games in 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 choosing those sort of elements? I I would say so. In that. Because board games require you to basically like, okay, you learn the rule set and you play by the rules and there's no game master, there's no GM fiat, right? Board games have to be so tight that any kind of variation that you're going to introduce has to like be a function of the physical components, right? Like that's just true about board games, mm. right? Because uh-huh. like without a, without a game master... Or, or a game master like player, like games like Mansions of Madness can have uh, this kind of experience in a board game. But like the physical components, well, you've got the app for it, don't you? Yeah, yeah, uh, well, yeah, the new version, yeah. yeah. But like yeah. the physical components are the only way that that variety really gets introduced. So like looking at it and saying like, oh, this is a way that like a very rigid rule set is able to introduce variety. That plus the fact that like. <laughs> Too many times we've been sitting down, you know, I told you about my Tuesday game where we, we play new games all the time. Too many times we've sat down and be like, okay, let's play this game. Great. All right, we're going to make characters. Super. How many copies of the book do we have? Two. How many players do we have? Six. Yeah. yeah. All, right. all right. Well, let's just hand this book around or whatever, yeah. right? Like the fact like that I ran into that so many times, I was just like, okay, well, I never have this problem in a board game where it's just like, yep, I pass out the tiles or the cards or whatever to everybody. Okay. Like, kind of made me realize, it's like, oh, like, there's actually, like, a, an advantage for quick play here of having components that can be distributed broadly as opposed to things in a, like, a, a single rule book, right? Mm-hmm. And so for the kind of game I'm trying to create, and, like, I, I wouldn't say this is like, oh, this is clearly better and all games should do this, right? But, yeah. like, for the kind of game I'm trying to create having that ability to like hand out the components to the players around the table and let people be doing things simultaneously is a huge boon to that yeah, quick play side yeah. of the game. Absolutely. It's kind of an extension of the idea of, I don't know, uh, character sheets that have all the information you need to play that character on that yeah. character sheet. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So if you're handing out cards with all the information you need to, say, adjudicate that power is on that card, 
that saves people flipping yeah, to a shared it, book and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and, and with uh, Dust City Outlaws first, and then also I'm doing it a little bit with Spectaculars as well, really tried to make it so that you never have to reference a rule book during play mm. because all the components have quick reference yeah, yeah. Uh, information on the back. So, like, the character sheet on the back has the rules quick reference, and your, like, specialty sheet in Dust City Outlaws on the back has the flow of play quick mm. reference, right? And then in Spectaculars, I'm kind of doing the same thing, where, like, there's a combat quick reference, and then also, like, your powers have quick reference on them, right? Because I think there's a lot of, like... Oh, like we're missing out on five minutes of entertainment by going to the rule book for this thing, right? That I tried to basically yeah. say like, okay, well, I've got these physical components right here that are sitting on the table in front of you for the entire game. I'm just going to make use of that space yeah. in a way that basically makes it so that like you don't miss out on that five minutes of fun by so, so what, what you're saying to me is you don't think watching somebody else read a book is fun. <laughs> I mean, I like masterpiece theater as much as the next person, right? But but but, but uh, um. A, a character sheet or these components they're basically your uh, your user interface yeah so, so what you're basically doing is you're making an rpg that's as accessible to play for people who are new to it as a board game which trying is trying to yes yeah try, try, yeah. yeah yeah we don't know if you succeeded <laughs> You, I feel like I did on Dust of the Outlaws, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, and, this, this, and I feel I yeah. feel confident about Spectaculars. So let's put it that wait, way. Wait, it's, it's got it's got funny dice in, and Russ says you'd like to play it. And Russ hates. <laughs> funny I do dice. hate funny dice. So I have a pathological <laughs> aversion to funny dice. So I I didn't get one. Well, try, with... try my funny dice. I didn't try my funny the, uh, dice and see what you think. The Star Wars yeah. and Warhammer dice. I have I have played games with those dice in. Mm. As yet, mm. I have not learned how to read them. Which I admit you know, is, it is tricky, which I admit right? is probably you know says more about that, me than it does about the dice, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm yeah. Uh, I mean, thank you. It sounds like a really good idea with these um, advantage and disadvantage dice, and just adding them into the pool. That's that's a really strong idea. Yeah. I, I I tried to streamline right. Like this mm. thing is like it, it's all about like getting as focused as possible on the the you know core benefits of that system and i think it works really well i'm really excited about it. obviously i used it a second time in spectaculars right but i guess it's up to people to decide if they like it or not <laughs> <laughs> okay um yeah so one one really interesting thing that i noticed is the um there's there's a random element to uh power selection in the yes. character creation process which um yes which i was quite surprised to see but uh it's not completely random is it it's uh you, was it you well you no take, you form a deck and then what was it you take five cards and choose one to three or something is that right that's exactly yeah. right yeah i mean you know so i know that there's a lot of people that are are very much in the like oh like i, I want to have complete control over making my character and like i, I totally understand yeah. that i think for superheroes because of the legacy of games like uh villains vigilantes and things like that there is some precedent in superhero rpgs for like uh okay i'm gonna get this like random selection of powers and figure out what to do with it i also think yeah. there's something fun about the the sort of puzzle of asking like mm. how does this suite of powers and this identity and this archetype how do these fit agree, together and like what entire, character yeah. does it make mm. i don't think it's vastly dissimilar especially when you're talking about a game that's designed for quick play and stuff like that it's not a million miles yeah. away from having a pre-gen anyway is it it's just a mm. pre-gen with a lot more flexibility no. i guess yeah that, that's certainly true I think also, like, not only is it, like, sort of fun to play that puzzle-solving game, I think there is something, uh, uh, especially because I'm aiming at a game where new players can jump in just as easily as experienced players, if you present, like, the the complete spectrum of everything you could possibly yeah. do... 
uh, every choice you could possibly make. Like the blank canvas is super intimidating and not just intimidating, but like a blank canvas is actually harder to solve for than like a limited scope. Right. And so by basically saying like, okay, here's five power cards, pick between one and three of those. I've sort of narrowed the possibility space down. It it becomes less intimidating for a new player. Now, all that having Mm. been said, uh, I fully recognize the fact that I'm like, I can't possibly come to everyone's house and be like, you must play the game this way. Right. So uh, (laughs) if you don't want, want to do random character creation and you just want to pick things yourself nothing is stopping you and in fact i'm going to include like an optional thing in the rule book that's like hey if you want to build your own character however you want just like flip through the deck and pick what you want and then use those powers right so there was a question i had so you choose one to three powers why would you not always choose three powers yeah so uh on your hero archetype sheet there's three slots, right? Because you literally take the card and you set it on top of your archetype sheet and then like where it, like the slot it plugs into mm-hmm. determines how powerful that power right, is for you, okay. right? So you have a superpower, a lesser power, and a right, minor power, gotcha. right? Yeah. Now, the lesser power slot and the minor power slot have a couple of little icons on them. And those mm-hmm. icons are the hero point icon. And hero points are a resource mm-hmm. that players get they can spend to do exceptional things. Like, yeah. Uh, everybody has a role in the team, like leader or tank or striker or whatever. All of those special abilities are powered by hero points, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? If you take a power card and you slot it into one of those two slots, it covers up those icons. And so you get fewer right. hero gotcha. points gotcha. than you would otherwise. Right? So basically you can say like, okay, I want to have fewer powers. But then I get more hero points, which is I get more resources to spend. Uh, Or I want to have more powers, which means I'll have more exceptional abilities that I can use uh, and sort of technically more skills by that extension. But I'm going to get fewer hero Mm. points. I'm going to have fewer resources to spend as I play along. And then there's a middle ground between those two, which are the basic powers. And so the game comes with five basic powers and there's four copies of each. So like anyone could have any of them, right? And it's things like flight and super strength and super toughness, uh, signature weapon, energy blast, very general things, right? And anybody can pick those in addition to like picking from the five that you're dealt out from the deck. And those have one hero point icon on them so that when you slot them into like your lesser or minor power slot it covers up the two icons on that slot but it has one hero point on it so you basically get one hero point and a much simpler power as opposed to like zero if you have a more complex yeah. power or two if you don't put a power in there oh, at all. Right? No, so there, there's a spectrum okay, there sure so what's, what's the uh, sort of room for character advancement because you say it's designed for Campaign players, what is yeah, one shot? Campaign so. play, yeah. I'm working on putting out another uh, one of my basic how to play videos right yeah. now that I don't know if you guys have seen those, but I've like, seen one it's of been, them, yeah. they're super fun. Yeah, they're super fun to create. Um, I'm just using like my own video, video editing software <laughs> and this microphone to record the voiceover. Uh, but like, so I've been working on it a lot recently, so it's kind of in the forefront of my mind. And so the way it works is that at the end of every session, you get like one check on a track that uh, has periodically has a, a spot on the track that's like, hey, you get a story reward. And story rewards are your primary means of advancement. Uh, and it can be everything from like very simple ones like, hey, you get an extra hero point every fight or uh, you get a new skill at 65% or whatever. Mm. So pretty straightforward ones. Uh, but then I've also got some that are uh, a little more tied into the comic book genre. For example, if you are playing your character and you want to rearrange your powers, you want to get a new power or whatever, you can pick uh, one of these story rewards that's like, hey, you get a new costume. 
right? Like the, you know, your character gets a new costume and uh, getting a new costume means you can re- rearrange your powers in a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, Spider-Man got his black costume, oh, right? Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. like now he has like, you know, slightly different arrangement of his powers mm-hmm. and everything. It's like, oh, his his Spidey sense is even stronger yeah. now, but whatever. That's what right? happens when I change clothes. Uh, and I so, mean, it sounds reasonable. Exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. yeah you, <laughs> you get totally new powers, <laughs> right? Yeah. So like they're, they're all really steeped in comic book yeah. tropes or there's one that's like team up, right? So when you pick the team up ability, uh, you basically pick another hero that's not on your team roster. And so that mean, that means it's like another hero that's been created for a different series or oh. that's not being played by any player. And then like in the middle of a scene, you can basically be like, oh, my team up buddy shows up. And so they show up for a scene. And so you play two characters for a little oh, yeah. while and then they leave at the end of the scene or whatever. Right? So it's very steeped in comic book like tropes and everything mm. as far as the rewards and then at the end of that track uh after you've gotten like your fifth story reward is your retirement reward and so basically this is like okay you've you've played this character for probably a full series at this point you've got to pick a way that your character is going to either sort of exit the setting or change their role in the setting so that they're no longer a playable mm-hmm. hero. And so this oh. is things like my character is going to pass the mantle on to another hero, Quite right? So like Captain America. Yeah. yeah. Captain America gives up being Captain America for a while and Falcon is going to take over being sure. Captain America. Or mm. uh, it could be something tragic like, oh, like Batman back in the 90s, Batman gets his back broken and uh, Jean-Paul yeah, Valley yeah. takes over yeah. as Batman for a while or whatever, right? Or it could be things like, oh, your character dies, right? And, and so like you're basically picking your character's exit stage left. And then, like, and then you make a new character that you're going to start playing, and that new character starts with like a little bit of an extra bump forward, right? So it's like, okay, mm-hmm. like, yeah, you're not playing this character anymore, but you still get some reward for it, for having played yeah. so much, right? And a lot of times that's very thematically tied in. So it's like, oh yeah, you pass the mantle on to somebody else. Uh, it's like you know, you're now you're going to play Falcon Cap or Falcon Captain America, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and so your version of Falcon Cap has maybe some of the same powers as your previous character but then also some different powers and a different identity and yada yada right so like basically what i wanted was i love like the the all the various tropes of comic book heroes but it's hard to work that into a campaign naturally sometimes so i wanted to basically put that on the players and say like hey sometimes you can just trigger one of these genre tropes right like the 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 costume change is a great example right like that's so hard to work in as a like a tangible thing in in a campaign, but I'm like you get to choose this when this happens, right? As one of your rewards. So like you know started started putting those things in there, and so yeah, it's a combination of like interesting things that happen to your character that are genre tropey, and then also things that change the world. So like one of the retirement rewards is like, hey, your character becomes the new head of like the the government agency in charge of superheroes right so like yeah nice. your character you can't play him anymore because now he's the head of yeah, shield yeah. right <laughs> and so like and so like you can totally change the setting with your retirement rewards as well mm, sounds very good yeah yeah you, you get like if five should, yeah. five of these rewards and and that gives you enough to like kind of evolve your character in a couple of interesting yeah. ways and then the exit stage left and then one of the things i'm building in is like hey so like okay you your character exit stage left and then you play a new character for a while when it's time mm. for that character retire mm. there are ways that you can go back to that old character and bring that character yeah, back yeah. in so it's like oh superman died so now i'm playing you know steel for a little mm. while and then the character exit stage left and now oh superman is back so <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you're quite uh, so, so. you're quite a sort of 
Renaissance man when it comes to genres, really. If you think about, you start, you started <laughs> off with Star Wars, you did D and D, you've mm-hmm. done Dust City Outlaws, and now yeah. you're doing superheroes. I mean, uh, yeah. is, is, your, is your goal just to hit every possible genre, or? I would say my goal is to not be restrained by a genre. Um, mm-hmm. Now, that's tricky because I think there are some genres that are more popular than others. Like, I think fantasy has a huge mm-hmm. audience, right? So any fantasy game is going to have a, a massive appeal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my big thing is I, I'm not super interested in creating, like, a product line of, like, 300 products for this one sure. game, right? Yeah, like, yeah, Dust yeah. City Outlaws is going to largely stand alone. Like, I'm doing some, like, PDF supplements and everything that are that are just more scenarios. But, like, I'm not interested in, in creating, like, massive product lines. What I want to create are largely standalone games. Now, I will say for Spectaculars, I am thinking about the future already and thinking about, like, oh, I'm going to do more series because they're, they're really easy to integrate into the game in a way that makes sense, right? Mm. Yeah, it's super extendable that yeah. way, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But but again, that's that's not like, oh, and then here's going to be the source book and then this source book yeah. or whatever, right? It's more like, yeah. here's more things to use to play sure. the game, right? Uh, uh, so one of the reasons why I'm kind of jumping genres a little bit is because I don't want people to get this expectation. They're like, oh, okay, like everything that this guy creates mm-hmm. is going to become this like massive product line that needs all the sure. support or whatever. Yeah. It's like, no, yeah. these games kind of stand alone. And like, I'm already thinking about like, hopefully as long as Spectacular is successful, mm-hmm. if I'm going to do another game, it will probably be in a different mm-hmm. genre. Now I might do things mm-hmm. like I just uh, recently released a setting hack for Dusk City Outlaws uh, Neon called City. Neon yeah. City Outlaws. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's cyberpunky. And so like, I might come back and say like, okay, like I'm going to do, you know, Neon City Outlaws as its own like full sure. box set one of these days. Uh, it's a different genre, but a similar game gameplay experience. So you know, I have some flexibility there. Yeah, yeah, Ties yeah. In yeah with but the heists and so forth. Exactly. Right. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, but I don't, nice. I, I don't want, I, I don't want to be in a position where people feel like, okay, like these games are a lifetime commitment that sure. I'm making to, like, well, yeah. I guess I have to buy all thirty of these supplements <laughs> yeah. or whatever, right? So. Uh, that, I think that's the big yeah. part of it. Is there, are there any genres that you're not interested in? Just, you know, no chance, just not me. I think there's genres that I would not be good at. Let's okay. put it that way. Like horror mm. is a great great example of one that would be really tricky for me because I, I like horror uh, games, mm. but I'm not mm. super great at understanding, like, the nuts and bolts of, like, why this is interesting. Mm. Like, I love Dread. Yeah. But I could Lovely never game. design a Lovely I game. could never design a game like Dread because like that game right. super understands like uh, this is what mm. like this is how horror works right uh, yeah. I I could never design something like that because I just don't understand the nuts and bolts of it as well um, and I think there's genres where I'm just not the right choice for the person to design mm-hmm. that game like there's a lot of great powered by the apocalypse games out there that i'm just like yeah I, like i this is not like i'm not the person that should design this right like monster hearts is yeah, a good yeah. example right like monster hearts is a genre that people who are more tuned into that should be the people mm-hmm. to design it that's just not i i'm not the right sure. choice <laughs> you ever thought about creating your own star wars analog perhaps not being a ah uh, man i don't know like there are definitely times where i sort of sit down and say like you know, if Lucasfilm came to me tomorrow and said, Rodney, I want you to design a new Star Wars yeah. game, I could totally do that. Like, 100%. Trying to make an analog, though, like, 
I don't know. Uh, I'm not super hot on games that are just like one step away from like a super big IP, right? I want my stuff to be different enough that it doesn't seem like, oh yeah, you're just trying to like create the this genre with the the serial number filed off, right? So I'm not I'm not hot on that as a gamer myself, right? Mm. I don't think I would I would do that, but I would totally I I would totally think about doing Star Wars, realize that it's a huge commitment and cost, and be like, Uh, well, thanks, but probably can't pull that (laughs) off with my little tiny publishing company. Yeah, well, I think, um, yeah, I think um, Fantasy Flight have got the Star Wars RPG market kind of uh, sewn up right now. I think they got that one locked up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, but like I I do every now and then think about like licensing games. Like we, uh, it was funny. My wife, when I was doing the Dusk City Outlaws Kickstarter, she misheard me the first time I I said the name of the game, and she was like, "What is Duck City Outlaws?" <laughs> That's my next. Game. And then we started talking about like what would a Ducktales RPG look like, and like yeah. you know, then I yeah, went yeah. off on this whole like Disney Saturday afternoon or Disney yeah. weekday afternoon cartoon like yeah, yeah. track, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I must say yeah, I would but, play Duck City Outlaws in the same way. One hundred percent. Dinosaur Princesses, yeah. Duck City Outlaws. I would play these games. Oh yeah, like just full on, no, no holding back. I, I do, I do insist, I do insist you do so in full cosplay. Oh, of course. <laughs> There's no other way to play. Of yeah, yeah. I mean, talking about licensed games, just going back to that for a second. Yeah. You just brought that up. So, sometimes you hear horror stories, and the you know some licenses are difficult to deal with. Sometimes you hear that some are lovely to deal with. I've never had a bad experience. Um, <laughs> I was just good say. We, but we mentioned we mentioned when we were talking to Grant and Chris last week about how mm. Star Wars must be the it's like the biggest possible oh. license. I think you could possibly maybe the Avengers, Star Wars. You know, one of those two is probably the biggest license you could possibly have and obviously yeah, yeah. You've, you've done that yeah you? you've worked on styles i mean what's what is it like working on such a big ip sort of under the sort of watchdog watching eyes of i suppose it wasn't disney at the time was it it was lucasfilm it was just lucasfilm uh, yeah 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 i mean how, how how intense is that are they are they like really do they scrutinize everything are they how, uh you know so to- so i would say that it was great working with them because one of the things that Lucasfilm had a handle on was they knew what was right for their their IP. Like they were like, okay, we have a very clear vision for what we want this to be. And this was even before like the the big like EU, like get rid of all this expanded universe stuff and reboot thing, right? But like even back then, they had a very clear vision for what they thought was good or bad for their their IP. They had a database that I could search that was like everything I could possibly want to know. My contacts at yeah. Lucasfilm were super responsive. I mean, like if I fired off an email, I could expect a response within a day or so, right? Which is uh, like for any kind of professional industry is amazing, right? So yeah, yeah. like they were they were super prepared and they were super like they had all the resources we could possibly want uh access to a huge art database uh the flip side of that though is that uh they had very high standards uh and that's not a bad thing like i'm i'm Mm -hmm. i would absolutely say that like it created like very good quality material but logistically it was often a struggle to get things up to that uh that standard of quality uh, sure. Especially with like the lower general, like you know, Star Wars was sort of a prestige brand for wizards and fewer resources for a long time. I was the only person working on the RPG. I mean, in fact, basically, other than Bill Slavasek, who was my boss at the time, I was mm. the person shepherding the Star Wars RPG on the like the design and development side. Right. Uh, and so, like, 
it was tricky with with sort of a lower amount of resources to pull that off. But at the same time, like it was kind of made up for by the fact that like I had a lot of support from Lucasfilm themselves. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like I would say the trickier part of working on a license like that was navigating the fan base um, mm. because mm. Star Wars. Star Wars has a unique history where, like, there wasn't much of an expanded universe when the West End game Star Wars game was out. Uh, there was, like, basically mm. the Timothy Zahn novels, and that was largely it for a the long EU time. came from that game, Exactly, it? yeah. Yeah. And so oh. there was a tradition among the fan or among the Star Wars RPG products of, like, creating canon content that would then appear in other things or like taking sure. references from novels and really fleshing them out uh so for a long time all the people that are like big star wars lore hounds are going to the rpg as their reference like this is way, this is before even like the sort of renaissance of like reference books and art books and everything there was basically like the star wars encyclopedia and then there was a whole bunch of rpg source books well by the time i start working on the saga edition rpg that has all changed, right? Like the RPG is no longer the number one resource. There's the website and there's the books and there's this and that and like tons and tons of stuff out there. But a lot of that fandom still expected the RPG to be like the ultimate reference book. And the thing is, I wow. I wasn't trying to create that. I was trying to create a game. And so navigating audience expectations is often tricky because I was like, hey, mm. I'm going to make decisions in the design of this product that are too best fit gameplay and there's a lot of people that are like mm. i don't care about that i just want to know how long that star destroyer is and i'm like uh, okay okay sure okay yeah so it was well, I, can, I can see that because uh, I, I think i'm probably a little bit like that too right mm -hmm. i'll uh I'll, I'll look at a licensed ip and i'll turn to i don't know i'll turn to the stats for yoda because i want to know what yoda's stats are and then i'll look at his scores and compare them to someone else's and go wait a minute okay yeah Sure, and that totally not used to be me Star too. Wars specifically, but you know, it's kind of that that attitude, that that way of approaching a licensed game. Did Lucasfilm understand fully what an RPG was? Yeah, yeah, actually. So I mean, did they did they get did they get? Because I imagine their licensing department is mainly dealing with you know lunch boxes and t shirts and mm -hmm. uh, so figurines had, and toys yeah, and stuff. Yeah. So I had two contacts at Lucasfilm. Uh, it was Leland Chi, who was the mm. sort of keeper of the holocron. He was the the you know the super <laughs> lore master, uh, and then Chris Gallagher was our contact for yeah. like the miniatures games, right? And both yeah. of those guys. Like, they knew what we were doing, right? And, like, maybe they didn't play our games, but they understood yeah. how they worked. Um, they were also great about, like, if they didn't understand something, they would just ask the questions. And sure. totally relied on us for, like, you know, like, they, they totally trusted us to make the right decisions for the games themselves, right? Sure. Um, yeah. So, yeah, both Leland and Chris were, were really great at sort of threading that needle between, like, hey... This is not a thing that I do. I, I don't play this game, but I understand mm -hmm. it enough to know, like, what you're doing. And, like, I'm sure that, like, they played D&D &D before or something like mm -hmm. that, right? Because those guys were both, like, very invested. You know, mm -hmm. like, I don't want to say geeks because that sounds detrimental, but, yeah, yeah. geeks, right? But, geek, like... Geek, geek culture uh, is fine, surely. Yeah, yeah like, absolutely, yeah. right? Uh, yes, yeah. So I, I think they got it, right? And, and they might not have been actively playing it, but they understood. Like, certainly... The feedback that I would get from them was never like, oh, yeah, you're going to need to make Han Solo's attack bonus a plus five here, right? Like, sure. Nothing yeah, like that, yeah. right? So, that, so, 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 yeah, so they never sort of commented on the actual rules themselves, just uh, all the law behind them. Was I, I, I think they would look at it and they would know enough to be like, oh, hey, like if this thing was really egregious, like a big, mm. like, oh, hey, like you've got the wrong weapons on this guy or something like that, they could totally recognize right, that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Yeah. 
It's been really amazing having you on. Um, I've learned Thank a you. lot. There's Spectacular's Kickstarter. It sounds like it's going to do a lot of fantastic things. Meet all your design goals of having a really accessible, really quick to play RPG. Any chance it'll be out in time for Christmas? Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, not this Christmas, uh, but next Christmas. <laughs> for a Christmas. A Christmas, yeah. Uh, no, so yeah, the, the, the delivery yeah, the delivery date uh, I'm shooting for is next August. Fantastic. Uh, that sounds yeah, like... Yeah. Well, well, I've, well, I've, I've backed it, so I can't wait to get mine. Yeah, um, so, yeah, so thanks so much for coming on, Modney. It's always, always a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, I'm sure we'll cross paths again before then. And uh, I cannot, cannot wait to get my hands on this game. Thank you so much. I, I'm really excited for people to actually get out there and start playing it, you know, assuming that we succeed in the Kickstarter and it gets made. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, absolutely. I'll tell you what, next next time we are at Gen Con at the same time, we have to either play that or Dust City Outlaws, one of the two. I would be sure. thrilled to do so. Hello, everyone. Your editor, Daryl, here to remind you about our Patreon at patreon.com slash morris. Every week, supporters of the show get a bonus episode of exclusive content that was just too much to keep in the full episode. Outtakes, off-topic discussions, more of our favorite game in all the world, alternate takes of each week's sketch, and anything else that just couldn't make it into the show. And yes, even this epic-length episode still has more material, over half an hour's worth, that couldn't make it in, including Skype fails, more details about the most middle-of-the-road vampire clan, LARPing, character sheet design, and a lot more. To get immediate access to this and every other Outtakes and Deleted Scenes episode and help keep the show going, become a patron at patreon.com slash morris. That is that was a long one, wasn't it? That it was fantastic, but then again, Rodney had a lot of interesting things to say. Top track. Well, that's the thing; there were so many subjects to cover, weren't there? Mm-hmm. Big career, uh, lots of to talk about, all great stuff. Mm. So yeah, yeah. Uh, does, does, Russ, does this mean that this is the end of the podcast? I think it does. Oh, but I was having such fun. Oh, never mind. I, oh, I suppose well. there's always next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's always next week. Yeah, so thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Um, it's been a blast, as always. It is goodbye from me, Russ. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Coffey, from the Southampton Guild of Role Players. And it's goodbye from him. And it's goodbye from him. And it's goodbye from me. Uh, it would be goodbye from Rodney as well. Goodbye, Rodney. And it's goodbye from Rodney. Yeah. And goodbye from Django. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs> and from Django. <laughs> and from Django. Yeah. Oh, that's like goodbye, everybody. Before. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Mmm, that was the best podcast yet. No, I'm just joking. It was awful. The dog that was howling outside my bedroom window last night would have done a better job. I'm considering swapping Russ and Peter's heads just to see what will happen. Do let me know next week if you notice any difference.